Well, good morning. Hope you've had a wonderful day of worship so far and are ready to turn to God's holy and inerrant word. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll kind of catch us up to speed on where we've been over the last couple of months. We've been looking at this amazing letter. We've looked at Paul and the missionary team, which had Silas and, and also Timothy. We've looked at how they entered Macedonia and the kind of pattern, if you will, of their ministry there. Initial success followed by great persecution and opposition. We've looked at how they entered the chief city of Macedonia, Thessalonica. And again, that pattern of great success followed by great opposition and persecution. We've seen the reason that Paul had to flee the city and how he went to Berea and how all the time he desired to return to the church at Thessalonica. We saw in Acts how Paul in Berea had the same pattern of initial success and also then great persecution as the Jewish leaders left Thessalonica and found Paul in Berea and opposed him again, forcing him out. It was actually as Paul was leaving Berea that, and heading toward Athens that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Now, scholars tell us that was about a, a month after he had left Thessalonica. And he'd only been in Thessalonica, by the way, as we've said, three to five weeks, I think closer to three weeks than to five. But this all took place in a very uh, compact uh, amount of time. Paul is greatly concerned for the Thessalonian church. That is the reason he sends Timothy on this dangerous mission back. Paul has a strong desire to learn how the Thessalonians are doing because he feels that he prematurely abandoned them. Now, As we read those first three chapters, we were struck by Paul's sentiment here, weren't we? After such a short time in the city, Paul had to leave and he realized it was not enough time to teach these disciples all things whatsoever Christ had commanded them. Sure, he could see an initial harvest, but he did not have enough time to train elders and deacons for the ongoing work of the church. So how could such an unprepared church survive? especially in the face of persecution from the Jewish leaders and from the wicked men of the marketplace. My friends, Paul wanted to know how could such a church survive, and he finds the answer only by the grace of Almighty God. Paul sends Timothy to check on these believers and to report back how they are enduring. The account that Paul receives surely overjoys his heart. Not only have the Thessalonians survived persecution, but they have thrived through it. They've grown numerically and spiritually. They've become examples to other believers, witnessing, if you will, in their own city and in their region of Macedonia and even witnessing beyond their region in Achaia. Paul says, it wasn't that long ago that you were following my example, and now I hear that you're setting an example to be followed by other believers. In other words, they've become a model church. Paul is surely thrilled to hear this. This is incredible to Paul because it verifies his desire, his sincere desire, to see evidence that their faith had been genuine. Now, this is not a perspective we hear much in the church today. In an age that declares any confession legitimate, every confessed conversion must be considered legitimate today. This text would trouble readers to hear that Paul says, I would like to see evidence that the faith of the Thessalonians is genuine. But Paul was simply 
confessing and proclaiming the same gospel that Jesus preached. Paul wanted to know, would their faith stand the test? Would they persevere? My friends, Paul is overjoyed when he hears that they have stood through persecution and they have not folded away. They have not run away. They have stood firm in the faith. Paul sees this as an evidence of their faith because Jesus said those who are saved by the grace of God will persevere to the end. Thus Paul can look to the Thessalonians who have endured severe trials with great success and find vindication that his work on behalf of the Lord has not been in vain. Now this matters because Paul is very concerned about his own work before the Lord. Now we must state this carefully and precisely. Paul's concern over his work is not in terms of his own justification. Paul knows that he is not able to purchase salvation through his own efforts. We just spent an extended time looking at Romans. We spent several years in Romans and we saw there clearly Paul knows that he is not saved by his own work. Paul is, however, greatly concerned that his work, his fruit, would remain and be proven good. Now, this is not a fear of judgment, but a motivation, if you will, deriving from love and thanksgiving. Paul recognizes what God has done for him. Paul recognizes the gift of God, the grace of God. He desires to have something to offer his Lord out of love and thanksgiving. Paul is thinking of the parousia, the return of Christ, his king. And he desperately wants to have the Thessalonian crown. That's what he calls it. The faith of the believers, the church in Thessalonica. He wants to have it as a crown to cast at the feet of his glorious king. It's for Christ's glory that Paul struggles and shepherds this flock. So that brings us up to speed on what we're looking at. I want us to read these first two verses, if you will, of chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The word of the Lord. Amen. As we look at this text this morning, let us consider the following points. First of all, Paul's request and demand. Second of all, we want to look at Paul's authority and message. And lastly, this morning, we want to look at God's will and command. Beginning first with Paul's request and demand. Our text for today begins in an interesting way. The New King James translates Paul's transition here as, Finally then, brethren. Now, that's the translation that's favored by both the ESV and the NRSV. And it's accurate enough, but it's also confusing. Paul has written three chapters of thanksgivings. And then says, but finally, and then goes on for two more chapters. Now the confusion is in the meaning of the words here. They mean something like, the remainder therefore. It simply denotes that Paul has finished the main purpose of his letter, which was to assure the Thessalonians that he had not forgotten them or abandoned them, but desired to return for their good and for God's glory. It's not that Paul is now closing the letter, but that his main purpose being finished, he is Moving on to other matters. One noted scholar on this letter translates this in a very conversational way. He says, well then, brethren. Paul has therefore more to say to these believers. In fact, he's going to challenge them boldly 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this in the remainder of the first verse. Look at it again. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We see the apostle speaking on behalf of the mission team. They urge and exhort the Thessalonians. Now, that's an interesting way of speaking. Urge and exhort are very similar, but these words are different. Eroteo, the, it, this word that he uses means to ask a favor or to ask a question. And then parakaleo, that's a word that we have spoken about many times in our journey through this letter and through other letters. It literally means to call one alongside, to encourage, to bring them along. Paul is calling them alongside him as he follows the Lord. Together, this request and call is strong and denotes what is proper and fitting for the Thessalonian believers. So they are asked and encouraged, urged to do what? To abound more and more. Not in something new, but in what they are already doing. Paul is urging them to continue to walk further and faster in the faithful direction they have already been walking. Do you see the way that Paul words it? Continue walking according to the manner you received from us, according to the commandments that you receive from us. Now this idea of walking is not new to us. We've seen it before. We had an entire sermon on it in Romans, didn't we? In fact, you can see it in throughout the Bible, throughout biblical theology, this picture of walking. And in Romans, of course, it was about walking, wasn't it? According to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But we see it even as far back as Genesis, don't we? We read of Enoch who walked with God. And of course, this idea of walking is referring to our manner of life, our manner of how we live before the face of Almighty God. And so we see that what Paul is saying here is something very important. Continue and abound more and more just as you receive from us on how you ought to walk, how you ought to live out your life before God. Now, my friends, this is really important because Paul ties this to the apostolic commandments, doesn't he? He says, this thing that you've received from us, meaning the mission team who represented the apostles, if you will, well, F.F. Bruce speaks of this as saying that these apostolic writings had three main components. First of all, a summary of the gospel story. So there is the gospel story. But there is also a rehearsal of the deeds and words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, if you will, and also the ethical procedural guidelines for Christian living. It was not only what Jesus had said and done. It was not only the content of the gospel itself. It was how you would have lived this out as a believer. And so Paul is saying, all those things that we've given you continue steadfastly, abounding more and more in them. Now he says he wants them to please God. But it's in this way that they will please God. It's through walking in the manner that God has called them to walk that the apostles have taught them. It is through this method that they will please God. Now this tells us what we need to recognize. It tells us that living in this way is living according to faith. That's what it says in in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? The just shall live by faith, that we are to live by faith. This is what Paul is quoting Habakkuk to say. 
Those who are justified, those who are in right standing with God are those who live and walk by faith. So if we want to please God, if we want to live in the way that we are called to live, we must first live by faith. And that just makes sense. Because Paul is speaking of pleasing God and the author of Hebrews tells us that outside of faith it is impossible to please God. So ultimately Paul wants them to continue living as they have already been living living according to the instructions that they have already received, living out those instructions by faith, trusting in Christ, and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. If there is a a point of application for us today, it's wrapped, I think, right here. Because what Paul is saying is you don't need more. You don't need something new. You need to live out what you already know. And we see so many Christians today that say, if I only knew more, if I only knew some secret truth, if I only knew some great revelation, then I could live out my life as a Christian. But what Paul is saying here is, live out what you already know. Now, Paul is not in any way, shape, or form telling them not to learn more. He's saying, first, you must live by what you've already received. Faithfulness before God is living in what you've already received and then striving to know more of God's character and His grace and how you might live in a way that pleases Him. But my friends, so many believers will not live by what they already know. I I heard uh, recently Sinclair Ferguson say that so many Christians want to know the secret will of God. Yet they have no interest in the revealed word of God as found in the scriptures. This is a problem for our age. Paul says, live by what you already know. Live by what's been revealed to you. Live by the information that you have. Strive to live faithfully. Walk as you've walked. Abound more and more as you already have been living. And then strive to know more. Strive to grow Strive and desire to know God and to love God more, to live more and more by faith. You see, that's the call to sanctification. There are no ways of getting around the hard work of implementing what we already know. And that's what Paul is telling them. Continue to live out what you already have been called to, what you already know. My friends, those are important truths that we need to hear today. So many Christians will go buy a thousand books at a Christian bookstore, but will not read their Bibles. And yet God has given his word to us to direct our paths. So if we have seen Paul's request and demand, I also want us to see Paul's authority and message. I want us to notice something about what Paul is telling us here. What is the source of Paul's authority and message? What is the source of Paul's authority and message? Even though it's the apostolic message, Paul calls it this, an apostolic message or the teachings that they have left them with. It's the same thing that Jude calls the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. But brothers and sisters, this was not delivered out of thin air. The apostolic message is the gospel of God. It's called that throughout this letter. It's called that in Romans. It's called elsewhere the gospel of Jesus Christ. The content of the gospel was authored by God, planned from eternity past, graciously given by God, purchased by Christ, transmitted and recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The apostolic message, which we still proclaim today, is actually the work and proclamation of our glorious triune God. Now you see that twice 
in today's text. Ask and encourage, Paul says, in the Lord Jesus. In the New King James, let's go back to its wording. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in what authority? In the Lord Jesus. And if we move beyond that, we'll also see that he says, the commandments that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul never rests the authority on himself, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does this message and authority originate with God, but it is for His glory and according to His own good pleasure. The entire message is not primarily about what pleases the Thessalonians, but about what pleases God. Paul did not say, live in a manner that pleases you. Paul said, you should live and walk in a way that would please God. Now, my friends, that is another message we need to hear. We could have another application point here, couldn't we? We live in an age that has that totally backwards. It's not about your glory and and what pleases you. It's about what pleases God and about His awesome glory. That's what matters. You know, our forefathers in the faith taught us this, didn't they? Whether it be the Westminster divines or whether it be Spurgeon, we follow his catechism here on Sunday mornings, of course. But what is the first question of both the Westminster Catechism and Spurgeon's Puritan Catechism? It's what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Yes, there is enjoyment on our part, but it is tied to glorifying God, to recognizing the need to bring Him glory and to bring Him pleasure. And in that, we shall have pleasure. We shall have if you will, enjoyment. G.K. Bill, in his commentary on this passage, said something very striking. He said, Whether in the ancient world or today, the chief end of humanity has often been to take pleasure in this life. In contrast, our passage begins by affirming the opposite. Humanity's chief goal ought to be to take pleasure in pleasing God. My friends, what Gregory Bill is trying to say is that we've gotten this backwards. We've made us the focus when God and His glory should be the focus. My friends, again, we see where we repeatedly err. Repeatedly err. So if you've seen those two points, I want to bring us to our final point, God's will and command. None of this writing by Paul is written as if optional. This is the command of Almighty God. Paul also goes on to say at the beginning of verse 3, if we were to continue forward, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, your sanctification is the will of God for you as a believer. Therefore, it is not optional. Later in this same letter, Paul will speak of the will of God. In chapter 5, what does he say? He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, my friends, anytime the Word of God says that something is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, it should perk our ears up. But notice again what it is. It's to rejoice always. In all times, in all things rejoice. To pray without ceasing. And in everything to give thanks. That is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. In other words, what it's saying is these are the very marks of sanctification. We are to be sanctified. That is God's will in Christ Jesus for us. 
And we need to recognize this fact. Rejoice. Be prayerful. Be thankful. These are the fruits of Christian life. In other words, these are the very things that Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers. Continue to abound more and more in these things. Walk more and more in this direction. Paul is speaking about the process of sanctification. Now in the verses ahead, Paul will speak much more about sanctification as we just saw. He'll be talking about how we live out our faith, how we are sanctified, how we are conformed by the Spirit into the very image of Christ. But today I want us to think more generally about this call, this command that we are to walk and abound more and more in the things that we know, to walk in the ways in which we've been commanded. Now, we can't say as the Thessalonians that Paul has personally, in person instructed us, but we have the writings of Paul. We have the Holy Scriptures, the inspired Word of God. We have this that we might follow the instructions we've been given. In fact, we are blessed to have this complete canon of Scripture that we might hear it and follow it and live it out by the grace and empowerment of God. And so, my friends, we need to recognize this. We'll be talking much about sanctification and how we are to live out our faith by the power of the Spirit who is given to us at our justification. One of my favorite texts on Sanctification is found in Colossians chapter 3. I want you to to listen as I read, and in fact, I hope you turn there and read it with me. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on the tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are to turn away from the things of this world, turn away from the traits of this world, and to walk in a new way which brings glory to God, which pleases God because it's a life walked by faith. My friends, we need to recognize that this is the call that Paul is reminding the Thessalonian believers that God has placed on them. 
Be sanctified. March forward in the Lord. Walk as you have walked. Abound more and more in what you're already doing for the glory of God. That is what you need to do. I want to close today by saying that far too often we see people break these letters in half, right? You see often they'll say, well, the first half of this letter is theology and uh, the second uh, half is practical living. I, I pray that you remember when we went through Romans, we saw the same thing, right? People say, well, the first 11 chapters is all theology, and then after that, Paul deals with practical Christian living, as if they are completely divided. But they are not divided to Paul. Many Christians today see it the same way. I don't need to know any theology. I'm just going to try to live in a right way. Or, I know lots of theology, so I don't need to live in the right way. Paul says neither of those is the fullness of the Christian life. If we want to live out what we are called to, we need to know something about God. We need to know something about His grace. We need to know something about what He has done. We need to know more about Him. In fact, what is theology other than the study of God? If you love God, if you are called by God, you should want to know more about Him, about His grace, about that to which He has called us. But neither can we be a people who don't care about living it out. We just want to learn more like we're playing some sort of biblical jeopardy, some theological jeopardy. You'll meet Christians like this. They know lots of theology, but they don't live like Paul is telling us we ought to live. They don't live in a way that God has called us to live. My friends, Paul says you can't separate them. Theology and practical living of the Christian life must be married. You cannot separate orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They must be put together. And so that creates a challenge for our church and for many today. We need to have an interest in theology. We need to desire to know more about our glorious God, about our King Jesus. We need to desire to know more about the Holy Spirit whose love has been shed abroad in our hearts. We ought to want to know more about the salvation that we have in Christ. There are so many things that we ought to desire to know more deeply and to know better. But we must also work on living it out. You see what Paul says not only in Colossians but in 1 Thessalonians is quite simple. If you want to please God, you need to walk in the ways that he has called you to walk. Now this is to believers, those who are already saved by God's amazing grace. But if you have been saved by God's grace... You are called to walk in this way, to abound more and more in the ways that God has called us and commanded us. And again, it is not optional. If God has called and commanded, it is not optional. If you are a believer in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a bondservant of Christ. You've been purchased by His spotless blood. My friends, it's my prayer that as a church, we would see and recognize the need to work on both sides, to desire to know more about God and his awesome glory and to desire more and more day by day to walk in a way that pleases him. That is the walk. That is the life of sanctification. Those two things married together as Paul marries them together in his letters. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy married together. That is the way we should walk in a way that pleases our holy God. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we will desire to do just that for our good and for God's amazing glory. Amen.